0: Oh, look at that, those faces look familiar. Today we begin a new sermon series titled The Church, Metaphors of the Beloved. Why a series on the church? Because nothing in this world could ever be more misunderstood, marginalized, disputed, ignored, mocked, betrayed, threatened, cheapened, persecuted. And if this sounds like how Jesus was treated on earth, it is for the church is Jesus on this earth. Just as Jesus walked the earth misunderstood, ignored, persecuted, so too the church. And not only is the church misunderstood by those outside of the church, there are many inside of the church that get her wrong as well. They love Jesus, they just don't like the church. Others church hop, thinking that there is a perfect church that meets their needs like they can just check off all the boxes. No such place exists. Or perhaps some were hurt somewhere and now they do their Christian thing at home. It's best this way, they assure themselves. But Jesus loves the church, blemishes and all, and so too must we. Now why metaphors? Well, the Bible has many metaphors for the church. Metaphors give us a mental image to to help us better understand some underlying important truth about the church. And so the church is what? The body of Christ. The church is the flock of Christ. Uh, Church is the temple of Christ. Now, today we start with the metaphor of the bride of Christ. Now, why is that? Because all other metaphors find their genesis in this one. Let's begin, let's start. Our passage comes from the book of Revelation towards the end, beginning in chapter 19, verse 6, we read through verse 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reign. These are the true words of God. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word for us. We're we're thankful that the angel um, showed the apostle John uh, these words, and he said, make sure you write them down. We need them today. We need to know and understand this this wonderful reality of being the bride of Christ, of being the betrothed um, to the the lamb who suffered and was slain for us. May you open our minds and press in more deeply uh, what you would have us to understand about this. And may we rejoice all the more we pray, amen. Think of all the movies that begin or that, that involve some sort of wedding theme. My big fat Greek wedding? Parts one and two, four weddings and a funeral, the wedding singer, father of the bride, that's a good one, the princess bride. I was a youth pastor. I've probably seen that thing 25 times. And have you noticed that like pretty much most movies that involve weddings are comedies, right? <laughs> I no doubt someone here is sitting there thinking, they did a movie on my marriage. It should be a murder mystery. Whoever's not laughing, that's them. And so when we wish uh, to study this metaphor of the church, which gives us this mental image of a wedding, uh, we need to approach it with some wisdom and some caution, right? I mean, when the Bible declares that the people of God are the bride of Christ, it should lift us above the realms of when Harry met Sally. And for guys, guess what? This is a little bit harder for us. You know, being a bride is not on our bucket list. (laughs) But in a biblical sense, it should be. And so this biblical metaphor of the church being the bride of Christ should stir in our hearts a longing which which in which it just seems too good to be true. What we're studying here today should be like looking through a keyhole in a door. And and what you see is so marvelous to behold that 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 you wish the door could be opened in an instant and then you could enter into the joy on the other side of the of that door. That is, in effect, what God is trying to produce in us, a spellbound, mystifying longing to not only be who we are in Christ, his beloved bride, but also to hasten that wedding day that is on the other side of this door. Now, before we dive into the details of what this metaphor is all about, let's first address why it is so important for for us, not just to study this, but to delight in it. There's a couple of reasons. One, first, The church in this world is mocked and ridiculed by this world. Most Americans are post-Christian. They look at the church and at best they roll their eyes and at worst they seek to harm her. But we should know that things were far worse back then when the book of Revelation was written. The book as a whole was given to implant a sure and, and, and certain future of glory for God's people. There is a wonderful light at the end of the tunnel so that, so that the church can, can, can prosper um, and persevere despite the fact that we live in an antichrist world. So, the light at the end of the tunnel is one reason why we need this metaphor of being the bride of Christ. It's, it's hard, right? We understand this. Another reason is, is that our lives on earth read more like the script from the movie My 51st Dates. <laughs> starring Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore. Barrymore's character had lost her short-term memory in a car crash, and Sandler falls in love with her. But because she wakes up each and every day not remembering the day before, Sandler must win her heart anew each and every day. I think we could be like that. We suffer from short-term memory loss, and Christ needs to Refresh and awaken us each day. And he does so. See, he does so, and he doesn't do so by merely pointing out that, that we are his friends. And we are. Or, that, or his subjects, which we are. He's the Lord, after all. But most importantly, he does so as his beloved bride. And so we need continual reminding of who we are. And who are we? We are the beloved of Christ. See, when the people of God, the church, see themselves as the bride of Christ, it changes everything. It changes how we see and understand ourselves. It changes how we see others, and we need this. And it changes how we live in the moment. And so here is what we'll be pondering this morning. Being the bride of Christ is the greatest of blessings. Those who belong to Christ by faith are together the bride of Christ. We, together, the church, we are the betrothed. And just as every bride who loves her bridegroom longs for that day of the wedding celebration, so to us. We have a wedding feast coming. And so we must live in light of the fact that the church is the beloved bride of Christ. That's what we're going to look at. And we're going to do so under three headings. We're going to look at the gift, the glory, and the grace. The gift, the glory, the grace. First, the gift of marriage. Now, when I say the gift of marriage, what pops in your mind? Maybe a wedding presence, right? It's so much fun to have a wedding registry, right? Um, Or perhaps how marriage is a gift to us, and it is, but I prefer to start somewhere else. Here's the big idea. God the Father has given the church to Christ. Just as in most weddings the Father gives away the bride to the bridegroom, so too God the Father has given us, the church, to Christ. How do we get there? How do we, how do we come to that conclusion? Well, we see in Jesus' prayer, the night before he gave his life and died for his bride, he said these words. He prayed this to his Father. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. God has given his eternal church to his eternal son as a gift. And listen, please understand this. Jesus sees us as a gift from his father. We are the betrothed to Christ. The bond has been established. The wedding is yet to come. You know, in ancient times, they didn't have engagements. They had betrothals. Betrothals are not like our engagements today. Engagements today, which are often broken, the commitment doesn't come until the wedding day. But with the betrothal, the commitment begins at the betrothal. The wedding celebration is simply consummates this commitment that is already established. Does that make sense? Now with regards to our betrothal to Christ, when exactly did that take place? It took place before time began. Ephesians 1, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the picture we see in this passage of us standing on this marriage feast, holy and blameless before him. God, the Almighty, Sovereign Lord, chose us in Christ to be washed by Christ. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, please take a moment to let this sink in. You were given to Christ before the world was created, which means you have been on Jesus's mind for thousands and thousands of years, long before you ever even heard his name. We were a gift to Christ long before Christ became a gift to us. Oh, that we would dive deep into this truth, that that Christ cherishes his church. Jesus loves us with a steadfast, joyful, I cannot wait until our wedding day kind of love. So I'm going to try to get through this. I met my wife, Leslie, in um, October of 1998. I was the part-time junior high youth worker and she had just been hired to be an assistant in the high school ministry. I fell in love with her like real fast, like she checked every box and then some in like 10 hours. (laughs) For her with me, it took a little longer. I asked her to marry me in April and she said yes. And we figured out an October wedding date. The problem was Leslie had a summer-long obligation to be a mountaineering guide at a Young Life Christian camp out in Colorado. So I would not see her for three months. It would be the longest three months of my life. I could not wait to marry her. And finally the day arrives. And here I am standing in the front of the church next to the pastor. And, 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 then, and then the, the, the organist plays the opening notes of Canon and D. And I saw her clothed in beauty, and then it happened. Tears of joy, like a river. I'm not joking. They just started coming down, and I couldn't stop. And I, For a second, I was embarrassed, but I'm like, no, it's okay. I, I really needed like, like a whole roll of bounty towels, and I didn't have them. Um, and it seemed like it took forever for her to get down that aisle. And the whole time, my heart leapt with joy. Now, listen, if that is how I felt, how much more so Christ, the bridegroom, does he not long for us, his bride? Christian, get this into your head. Let, it, let, let the thought of it push out whatever falsehoods that are in there. Jesus cherishes his bride. He delights in receiving her as a gift from the Father. And yes, He knows that we are needy, that we are petty, that we are sinful. But he has a way of loving his bride despite all of her blemishes. And as we see in this passage, he will eventually present her in beautiful glory. That's the gift. Now, how about for looking at the glory? Think of all the preparations that go into having a big wedding Setting the day, picking the reception hall, and the caterer, and the florist, and the photographer, probably social media person now, I don't know. And oh yes, there's the dress, and the cake. For a wedding to be glorious, a lot of preparation must take place, right? So too with this magnificent day to come. In our passage, we see two glorious things to rejoice over that have taken place in preparation for this wedding day. First is this, the glory of God triumphing over evil to, to create on earth a place for God's people. And, and second, the glory of the bride being made ready for this day. We see both of these in verses 6 and 7 where we read, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the Lord our God the almighty reigns let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready do you know what the inhabitants of heaven are singing up there It's the hallelujah chorus from Handel's Messiah. That's where it comes from. From the opening verses of chapter 19. I'm not going to sing it. (laughs) For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. By the way, there's four hallelujahs in the opening chapter 19. The hallelujahs in heaven are because God has finally triumphed over Satan, his evil spiritual kingdom, and all who align with him. That's what Chapter 17 and 18 are about. The cosmic battle is over. Hallelujah, hallelujah, and he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. This day of glory is in the future. For now, the bride of Christ exists like she's Cinderella. Harsh surroundings pressed in by powerful forces, relegated to stepsister status by our society and our culture, laughed at and ridiculed. Good luck getting that dress ready. But what we see earlier in chapter 19 is a glimpse into the future. We see God will judge the cruel stepmother, or in our case, the great prostitute that has corrupted the earth. You're just going to have to go read it. And in chapter 20, which follows, describes in greater detail that Satan and all who bow a knee to him will be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. And so before the marriage supper can take place, God will first cleanse and remake this world in glory. That is what we read in chapter 21 of Revelation. I know many of you are familiar with it, but I want you to see how the bride fits in. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away. And the sea was no more. There is no more sin. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared. How? As a bride uh, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Listen, we are the bride of Christ, and Christ knows the hardship and the mistreatment that we endure as his people. You know, yesterday marked the 20-year anniversary of 9/11. It was an evil and dark day, where the, for where evil from the pit of hell attacked. Over 3,000 people were brutally killed. Many of them were part of this church we're discussing, the Bride of Christ. One of them was a man for whom this devotional book belonged. It was given to me by one of our former members, Rob Wickland, who served as a police officer downtown uh, during the mayhem of the cleanup of the Twin Towers. He found this devotional book titled, In Him, and a man's name inside Jorge is inscribed on its pages. I keep it in this Ziploc bag because the dust from that terrible day has infiltrated inside all of the pages. My friends, this small booklet is a testimony that the beloved bride of Christ has endured cruelty from the hands of God's enemy. But one day we will rejoice with that great roaring multitude and Jorge's probably there, that God has finally triumphed. Then and only then will our wedding feast begin. That's the glory of God reigning in triumph over evil. It's coming. Next is the glory with regards to what happens to us the bride. On that day we will have been made ready, that is made pure and bright and holy and clean and righteous. You know, I'm not the man I know I should be as a husband, as a father, as as a pastor, you name it. Why am I not the man I know I should be? Sin it's there. It lingers. Sin isn't just outside, it's inside. We're all born with original sin. It's the reason why you know the good thing you ought to do and yet you don't do it. But there's a day coming when that will be no more. Again, verse seven and eight we read, for the marriage of the lamb has come and the, his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. What is that? for the fine linen is the righteousness or the righteous deeds of the saints. Did you see that? The bride has made herself ready. She doesn't enter into this marriage with reluctance. There's no cold feet here. She's ready. She'd run down the aisle to be united with the groom if it wasn't for those heels. Now understand this. The bride of Christ, his beloved church, are only those who freely, with joy and love, come to Christ. God's grace has come upon them and, and has liberated them so they can run freely with delight towards Christ. And we see that she's been clothed with fine linen, bright and pure. And how does John describe the fine linen? Well, he says it's the, it's the righteousness of the saints. Did you see, though, that it says it was granted her to clothe herself? It was God's gift to her. Righteousness granted, lavishly given away. God will one day fully prepare you to stand in heaven without sin. Listen, Charles Spurgeon points out that this righteousness that will be upon us, it's not Christ's righteousness covering our sin anymore because we will no longer have any sin to cover. The bride of Christ will simply be righteous forever and ever. Amazing. Oh, that that day would come. Come, Lord Jesus. You know, that's how the book of Revelation ends, with a cry, come, Lord. Do you long for that day? I don't know about you, I'm tired of being a sinner. I'm tired of having to confess my foolishness or my errant words. I get tired of getting on my knees and confessing again and again. But this word instructs us that there's a day to come that God will grant us to stand in righteousness without spot or blemish forever. So first there's the glory to come when God makes this world ready, but then there's the glory to come when God makes the bride of Christ, the church ready. Can you see why that great multitude in heaven roars with hallelujah? So we've seen the gift and the glory now for the grace. We've touched on the fact of the bride of Christ being a work of God. of It's being granted to her. There's grace right there. She's clothed in righteousness. But I want to dig a little deeper. We, the bride, have the most gracious bridegroom. We are blessed to be the bride. As we read in verse 9, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Now, it kind of appears as if maybe there's two sets of people. There's this bride, and there's the, those who are invited to the wedding. I mean, you always gotta be someone to throw the rice, right? But they're one and the same. Remember, metaphors always have their limitations. And so in verse 9, when talking about who get, is getting invited, it's we, the bride, who are invited. The point being made is that the bride does not deserve to be here. And yet she's been blessed by God, by his grace with an invitation. But even more so, the grace given to us as the bride of Christ is manifest in this passage, how? By who our bridegroom is. And who is the groom? Is it Christ the King, victorious and brave? No. Is it Christ the rabbi or good teacher? No. Is it Christ the miracle worker? No. He is the Lamb. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Why why the Lamb? Well, think it through. It is the Lamb of God that you first set your eyes on in, in Christ in faith. It is as the Lamb of God that you're heart came alive with love for Christ as your Savior. It is as the Lamb of God that you have come to know how much your Heavenly Father loves you. It is as the Lamb of God, slain from the foundations of the world that that Jesus called upon you to look to him. It is as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that hope has finally entered into your heart. In other words, it is as the Lamb of God that you have come to love the Lord Jesus and you know anyone can love a wealthy powerful king just give me a minute I can get my foot in that glass slipper wait don't run but our savior though a king came not as a king but as a lamb to be slaughtered for you and for me. And when you and I stand there on that glorious day to come, arrayed in fine linen, bright and pure, we will look with love and delight and amazement and joy and say, it's him. It's the lamb who was slain for us. The lamb who has taken away my sin and made me righteous. So my friends, is it not true? It is as the lamb who takes away your sins that you've come to love Jesus. Jesus once said, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And after saying that, Jesus laid down his life for his enemies too. It is as the lamb that one comes to know and love Jesus Christ. And so let me add this word of caution Do you love Christ as the lamb? You know, there's many people on earth, they reject Jesus as the lamb who takes away their sins. Oh, they're willing to to take him on as their teacher or as their exemplar of being a good person. But as the lamb who takes away their sins? No. Listen, if this is you, if you do not yet look to Jesus and delight in him as your lamb who died for your sins, then you will have no part in that glorious day to come. This is not the wedding supper of the teacher or the exemplar. This is the wedding supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, if this is you, I tell you right here and now the invitation is there for you. Christ stands ready to receive all who repent and lay their sins upon the cross of Christ. The lamb is ready. The lamb is willing. Are you? And so listen, my friends, it's most appropriate for Christ the King to appear in glory as a lamb, because it is as the lamb that he has most fully displayed his love for the church. The apostle Paul speaks of this when he writes to the church in Ephesus. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? Why did he die on the cross for the church? Paul continues, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church where to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ loves the church so much that he gave himself up for his bride to cleanse her and prepare her for himself. Well, the first time, first time, I asked Leslie's father, Eric, for her hand in marriage. It was over a racquetball game. And I said something like this. Mr. Schmidt, I would really like to marry your daughter. If I beat you in racquetball, would you allow me to marry her? And he said, sure. And then he kicked my butt. The second time I asked for Leslie's hand in marriage, he said, I only have one question for you. And then he quoted that, this passage is right from Ephesians, and he said, will you love her like Christ loves the church? And without thinking, I said, yes, yes, I will. But it was later I had to confess, "Ah, I want to, but I don't think I can. See, only Christ can love with perfection, with tenderness, without missing one of those signs that things aren't right. So we looked at the gift and the glory and the grace of being the bride of Christ and of being invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. We have seen that being the bride of Christ is our greatest blessing because it means that we are Christ's beloved. He cherishes us as his dearly loved bride-to-be. And so, let us then now live all the more in light of the fact that the church is the beloved bride of Christ. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a meal of grace that Christ has given to his bride, the church. As we gather here, I want us to think about all the brothers and sisters that are gathered in here with you. Some of them you might know well. Some you might know really well. Some not too well. Some way too well. Maybe they've offended you. Maybe they've hurt you in the past. Maybe it was me. I wouldn't be surprised. As, you read, as we receive the Lord's Supper, remember that one day, all of us who are gathered here today, we will stand next to each other wearing fine linen, bright and pure. We will stand fully washed and clean and righteous. Listen, this is how our Lord sees us. May we look at each other through those same eyes. And this supper tells us that our groom is, is even caring for us in this very moment. He gave us this meal to celebrate each and every week. It signifies to us that he loves his bride. And through this meal, he has given his bride everything that we need to strengthen us and fill us with grace to not just persevere in this antichrist world, but to live vibrant, purpose filled lives until he comes or calls us home. Jesus sees us now, and we are his beloved, his bride. Let's pray. It seems too good to be true, but it is. The The angel said, write down these words. They're from God. They're true. <laughs> we are the bride of Christ, beloved. Father, we pray that you would help us to more rightly understand this truth. May we just rest in that grace. May may we know that this world is hard and broken and difficult and we are part of the problem, and yet because we belong to Christ, we will be cared for until that day, and we will be made perfect and beautiful. We thank you, Jesus, for your work in us. We thank you for your love for us, your ongoing work in our lives. We long for that day to see you face to face. Until then, Fill us and feed us, but by your spirit we pray, amen.